We're back on Date with the Night, and joining me today is one of the hosts of the Ion Pod. He's a party organizer and an artist who's just released his single, Grace. I'm so excited to be speaking with Curtis Everett Polly, aka The Life. How are you today? Great. How are you? So good. It's so nice to have you on the pod. Thank you for joining me here today. Thank you for having me. Major congrats on the release of your new single, Grace. I've been listening to it like over and over and over again. It's a really, really great song. Thank you. You actually just threw a party at a historical mansion in Brooklyn for the release. Is this correct? This is correct. Yeah. And how did that go? Really smooth, all things considered. We've been throwing parties and shows for a while. This was the most work and planning any of them have ever taken. This was a huge undertaking. You're known for throwing big parties around New York through your podcast. It kind of reminds me a bit of like the Misshapes era. What do you like about throwing parties in New York? It's so easy to stumble into just really bizarre spaces. We've done plenty of parties in places where it's kind of dubious how it's even being pulled off, but it's kind of no questions asked, you know, kind of a classic New York thing. And I love just finding these weird places. And I love when parties feel like they should be impossible. Before your release party for Grace, was it through your Ion Pod event with the 1975 and the Dare that you first performed the song? We had played a couple times before that, but that was obviously like the biggest one. We did four shows last year, the 1975 one being the most recent. And then, yeah, this one just now. That was after the 1975 sold-out show at the Madison Square Garden, right? Yeah. What was it like playing that song to everyone? I mean, it was amazing. You know, it was kind of a thing that had bothered me about New York even a few years ago. Well, I just noticed that when I would go to L.A., when there was live music at a show or at a party, people were down to see live music. They were down for the experience. They would listen. And in New York, there was a weird stretch of time where I was kind of hanging out in these kind of DJ worlds, party worlds, and and was trying to make music with a guitar and people were kind of like, what are you doing, dude? Like, this is over. And that was really frustrating. And I remember thinking at the 1975 thing, everyone is stoked that a band's playing right now. Like a few years ago, people would have been like, oh, well, now's cigarette time. Now let's like go to the next place. But people were really in it. A mix of DJs and live is kind of the ultimate live experience to me. Yeah, same. You're friends with Matt Healy. He's a big supporter of yours. Yeah. How did you meet? How did you become friends? I just met him online because he listened to the pod. And we started talking online and then like sending each other music and shit. And then he was in New York and we met up. We were fast friends. You two have like a chemistry together. Like I read your interview for your new single, Grace, where you both discuss how to write a good pop song. I really, really loved this whole interview because it's kind of a conversation I have with my co-producer all the time. You mentioned in that interview that people idolize certain sounds from artists they like, but that the primary focus should always be on good songwriting. Were there any artists you studied or took writing cues from to learn and perfect your song craft? Definitely, but... It's this thing where if you rip off enough things at once, it sounds nothing like any of them, and you kind of end up somewhere else. Chris Black from How Long Gone just said this, and this was definitely something I was going for. It like reminds him of all these things, but it doesn't quite sound like any of them, and he can't quite place why it feels so familiar because it doesn't actually sound like any of the things that are coming to mind, essentially, which is, that was kind of the goal. I was just trying to take multiple songs and artists I love that have nothing to do with each other really and just kind of getting some kind of essence of like how those songs make me feel as opposed to trying to do that genre if that makes sense 
I think a lot of music today, and this isn't a dig because there's lots of music like this that I love. It's just kind of, oh, he's doing XYZ. He's doing an 80s thing. She's doing a singer-songwriter, 90s, whatever. They need those kind of nostalgic touchstones to make sense of what the person's going for. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't really make sense to me because it's not really going for any era or any specific artist. I'm going for, you know, certain feelings and certain feelings I get from tons of different music that has nothing to do with each other. You could pick out tons of references from it again, but it doesn't sound like any of them. So I think that kind of throws people. I wasn't expecting it to throw people so much, but I like it. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you about that clip that you posted to your story from the How Long Gone podcast, because the way that it was described, how Grace fit emotionally, like when you hear Gin Blossoms playing out in the wild, like at a grocery store, I just thought this was such a specific yet perfectly accurate description Mm -hmm. of the type of feelings that Grace evokes. And not compositionally, but in terms of emotional content, it kind of reminds me of when I first heard Truly Madly Deeply by Savage Garden. Amazing. I I mean, that was my favorite song when I was a kid. One of my early, early favorite songs. I was obsessed with B101. It was the soft rock radio station in Philadelphia. And it would play anything from like Brian Adams to like Babyface and kind of the 90s R&B thing. And I would just sit with cassettes and make tapes of all my favorite stuff that would come on the station all the time. We all have these memories of hearing these songs and hearing them in specific settings and specific contexts. And if you can pull at those memories without just aping the sound, that to me is something I was definitely going for. Growing up, I used to do the same thing. I would wait for radio stations to play my favorite music and then record it on a cassette tape and make a little mixtape. So yeah, that was definitely something that I kind of wish I could still do. Same, same. And I would do the same thing with VHS and I would put like VH1 on. That's how I first got really into Peter Gabriel because they would play the videos for Sledgehammer on VH1 all the time. And I just was like obsessively kind of making these cut up tapes. That's still kind of like playlist culture now. It's still kind of how I think about how I think about music. But as opposed to doing something that was genre hopping across a catalog, I really kind of want to make it maybe genre hopping all at the same time, you know what I mean? As mm-hmm. opposed to song by song. I've read that you really like Phil Collins. I've seen you mention Peter Gabriel as well. Yeah, yeah. He's a goat to me. In terms of Genesis, are you team Peter Gabriel or team Phil Collins? I definitely like Phil Collins' Genesis better. I love all eras of Genesis, really. I like the prog stuff too, but Phil Collins' Genesis was kind of not even Genesis anymore. People still think like of In Too Deep and those songs as Phil Collins songs, but those are Genesis songs. If I had to pick an era of Genesis, it would be Phil Collins for sure. I mean, Invisible Touch is like a masterpiece to me. But So by Peter Gabriel is probably my favorite album of all time. Yes, but Phil Collins did the Tarzan soundtrack and that was really good. (laughs) And that song goes so hard. It's so sick. It's incredible. They're both incredible artists, so it's hard to say. But yeah, I'm kind of with you. I'm team Phil Collins, I would say. And it's funny because, you know, a lot of people think of that as like, you know, music you hear in CVS or whatever. And I'm like, I guess it was pop in its day, but this is like insane songcraft. Do you have like a specific era of pop music that you would say inspires you the most? I really love late 90s, early 2000s radio. So it's not even necessarily artists. There's lots of like kind of one hit wonders in that era that I really, really love. And a lot of pop music from that time and bands that were 
thought of as pretty corny at the time. It's actually like pretty weird when you get into it. You know, even like Sugar Ray, that's a weird band, you know? <laughs> like if you actually listen to those songs, there's lots of like samples and weird shit going on. I love all of that stuff. I'm a huge 80s guy. I'm really, really into kind of the 80s British sophistipop stuff, Scritty Politty. It's like a huge favorite of mine. They started as a post-punk band, kind of art school post-punk kids who then just got really fascinated with pop music and kind of pulling it apart and making some interesting music that was way more kind of sophisticated than the their punk contemporaries and something that maybe their punk contemporaries would scoff at, but it still kind of came from that underground sensibility. Yeah. That stuff is really big for me. We used to have a show here in Canada on Much Music called One Hit Wonders, where they just play One Hit Wonders for a full hour. And Sugar Ray definitely is like... <laughs> yeah, I love that shit. It's so good. A lot of those bands, I think, kind of came out a weird time. It was like rock music in the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, it was like Matchbox 20 and all this kind of like post-grunge pop. Mm -hmm. And everyone just kind of associated any rock band that wasn't like rock and roll with that. But a lot of those bands were doing something that was way more sophisticated, I think, than it gets credit for. We used to have these albums called like Big Shiny Tunes that were compilations. Yeah, I loved compilations. It's probably too Canadian. I think it's like not really a thing in the United States, but they were big here. And Big Shiny Tunes 5, like check it out. Every track is so good. There was a Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the show. They had like a compilation album. And actually Sugar Ray has a song on there called Abracadabra. I think it's a cover. That sounds so up my alley. It's so good. You have to check it out. You'd probably love it. I was kind of wondering when I first heard of The Life, I thought that was a really interesting name because for me, it evokes this like thing. Well, what is The Life? Like, what does that mean to you or to me? How did you come up with The Life? To me, I love band names that don't really have an aesthetic connotation. It could kind of sound like anything. So it's kind of up to you to kind of build the aesthetic around it. You can kind of guide where it goes. And, you know, I was thinking about the cure, the police, the church, the sound, the fall, all of these the names that I loved. And the names fit the band so well, but they could have fit another band well too. The Cure sounds like The Cure because of the aesthetic connotations that they created. I wanted to do something like that where you really didn't know what the band was going to sound like. That's how I feel about Depeche Mode. I just think that's like an incredible name as well. It's like I don't know what to expect entirely. Right. I love all your artistic choices as an artist. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to hear the rest of your upcoming album. Can you talk a little bit about what we can expect from that or like what the thematic elements are potentially for these songs? I don't want to say there is an album, but there's a lot of more songs. I want to do an album for sure. That's like a thing that some people don't care about anymore. I still very much care about. Me too. Yeah. I don't really know how to write about specific things or specific people or specific moments. You know, like I've never like written a song that's just about heartbreak or something like things that songs are about. For me, it's more like I kind of will have a kind of abstract idea. I'm thinking about feelings of longing. I'm thinking about feelings of like self-sabotage. I'm thinking about feelings of inadequacy. I'm thinking about these like bad things, right? And then I have to like find something that makes sense to kind of bring it into a world that we understand. Like, oh, I'm gonna write about the experience of like seeing an ex. I'm not inspired by seeing my ex. That's like a concrete thing that kind of represented these 
more abstract ideas and then i'm like okay i can like use that as a vehicle to get to something relatable understandable and concrete does that make sense yeah no it totally does i love the lyrics of grace i don't entirely know what the song is necessarily about like i think i know what it's about or what it means to me what emotional space did you intend for like those lyrics to kind of occupy i don't mean this as a cop-out because I'm sure everyone says this, but I don't want to like say exactly because I like that you have what you think it's about and I will want you to take that from it. You know what I mean? Like I want you to stay with that, but maybe longing, something like that. Yeah, it is really that feeling of longing for me and also admiration of someone you really respect. Do you have like an artist or album whose songwriting is like underrated in your opinion or deserves more attention? I think Third Eye Blind are like the most underrated band of all time. I think the self-titled Third Eye Blind album is really, I think if it came out in a different era, like I said before, it would have gotten a whole new kind of respect. But people were like disassociating it with the kind of bubble grunge, like late 90s radio thing. But it was way more advanced than that. And also they were really influenced by a lot of like punk and post-hardcore stuff that I love. Like when I hear Third Eye Blind, I hear a lot of like Jawbox and kind of the Fugazi Discord Records scene that no one really ever talked about, like that kind of influence. But I think they kind of came from music like that and found a way to marry it to something poppier, but then use kind of both halves of those influences to make something that feels really big, shiny and new that is very, very underrated. I think that's a really brilliant album. I think he's a brilliant lyricist. Yeah, I remember my brother had the album Blue. That album's amazing. That's album two. I used to steal that album and listen to it front to back all the time. Yeah, I th it's, it's the, some of the best sounding guitar music ever. It was also kind of an era where people were not doing the kind of like saturated tape thing with guitar music anymore. It was like bringing it to somewhere modern. That record's like 25 years old now. And I think it sounds more new than a lot of guitar music that comes out now. This kind of ties into this question that I wanted to ask you about, like pop music in general. Like I've read somewhere, I can't remember where it was either I listened to it on your podcast or read in an interview that it kind of bothers you when people act above pop music. This is something my co-producer and I talk a lot about. People are sometimes snobby or dismissive. Why do you think that is? And like, where is the value in pop music in your opinion? We haven't even gotten into this, but I'm really into like heavy music. Actually, that's another answer to your last question. I'm not going to get off topic, but Refused is a band that was like huge, huge for me, like kind of changed my life when I heard them for the first time. The Shape of Punk to Come, the album by Refused, that was another kind of misunderstood album that was really rejected by hardcore fans at the time because they were taking it to somewhere brighter. When I was in my early 20s, I was like really into a lot of electronic and avant-garde stuff and noise stuff. And I think the thing that attracted to me about kind of heavy music and abstract music, it was extreme. And it was kind of like pushing where this thing I loved, music, could go. And I got excited by feeling like there was this whole other kind of world of music that went beyond the guitar and went beyond melody. And it really excited me when I was young. The reason I like seeing the extremes that music can go to is because I love music. And to me, great songwriting is extreme. That's just as extreme to me as the most kind of like out there heavy music that I listen to. Having a hit, like that's an extreme thing. That's crazy. Like imagine being able to do that. And that kind of thing is why I loved music. Like, you know, none of us got into music when we were kids because we were listening to like avant-garde classical. We got into it because we heard something on the radio that really connected with us, that made us feel something we hadn't felt before, that kind of took our mind to weird places. 
And being able to do that was the ultimate dream to me. Like I thought it was unbelievable. And then seeing people like reject that or see that as something lower than what they were in. And, you know, I'm talking polar extremes like avant-garde music versus pop, but that attitude exists everywhere in between it exists in the kind of indie rock and electronic circles, which is still music that functions as pop music. Essentially, it's still hooks and songwriting and, and riffs, etc. It still doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. I mean, what's more extreme than writing something that can affect people that way and take them to like a new emotional space or really kind of hit them in the gut in that way. And, and even on a visceral level, like pop production, when I first heard Sophie and the PC Music crew for the first time, I thought the same thing about them. I was like, this is, and, and people didn't get that either. I remember people being like, what are you listening to? This is like video game music. I don't get it. Obviously, attitudes have changed towards them now. Everyone loves them now. But it was this visceral element of you can take this production, you can take this kind of sonic world and make people feel something so visceral through production. But there's also this really tender and this rich songwriting, melody writing. It had the emotion and it also had this visceral layer. And a lot of the Bloghouse stuff was like that too. People, I think, sometimes don't realize the technical details that also go into a really good pop song, like both writing and production wise. Like some of the best musicians in the world are in the studio and on stage supporting pop artists, musicians like off the top of my head, like Matteo Sassato or Isaiah Sharkey. This has always been the case in pop music, like regardless of the decade. Like you had guitarists like, what's his name, Steve Lukather of Toto in the studio laying down tracks for like some of the best pop artists of the 80s. And you had producers like Quincy Jones doing Michael Jackson records. Like I could go on forever, really. But if you had like one pop artist that maybe gets a lot of flack, it's like if you mention it to someone, oh, I listen to this song or I listen to this album and they're like, oh, really? And they kind of double take you on and mistrust your music preferences. I get that with so many of my favorite things. Like obviously again from Third Eye Blind to I mean, you know, I was also just a huge emo kid. Me too. And yeah, a lot of that stuff is pop music at the end of the day, just with a little more yelling. Kind of the early third wave stuff, like the first used album or like early saves the day. I think it's the coolest thing in the world. I don't know. Yeah, me too. I still listen to In Love and Death from The Used. That album's yeah. so good to me. I love all those bands. I really do. Who's like one artist you would just be so over the moon to collaborate with? I think if I was to collaborate, I would want it to be someone who was like so far away from me. Like someone that is coming from a completely different place. Fucking like Nick Cave or something. Maybe like Damon Albarn. Yes. I can see you doing a collab with both of them, actually. Sick. (laughs) Amazing. Consider manifesting it. True. I mean, that stuff is real. You're one of the hosts of the Ion Pod, and Mm -hmm. there's a lot that comes with like being perceived as a podcaster and then trying to release music. Like, did you experience any resistance or was there any like worry or hesitation on your part about how people would accept you as a musician as well as a podcaster? Yeah, it's a weird thing, like going from this to music, but this is what I've always been after, obviously. And if you listen to the pod, you know that I've talked about making music so much and no one knew what it was. So there was obviously a lot of expectation. So if I let myself think about it, I could definitely get worried. But also, been doing this pod since 2020, I got more used to online hate. It would have really affected me if I kind of came out of nowhere just doing music but I think I've already kind of been through the process of like seeing people not like me online Mm -hmm. and I've 
learned how to deal with it already. So I feel like I kind of got past that hurdle already. I hear on your podcast, you talk a lot about film. Mm -hmm. Is there any sort of connection there, like where film has sort of influenced your music in any type of way? Totally. My favorite films and filmmakers, you know, from David Lynch to Vim Vendors, it's very kind of sensual filmmaking. It's the same kind of thing that I'm talking about, where I kind of see these ambient feelings that can't really be expressed quite through metaphor and plot and language, essentially, being expressed in this new language and seeing it visually, understanding someone's emotional state or the kind of larger ideas that someone's going for without having them explained or just kind of having them neatly represented in a way that they would in prose that is metaphoric, you know? Yeah. The way in which my favorite filmmakers are sensual in that way and the way in which they can explain and convey a feeling in a way that is a kind of beyond language is definitely something that really influences me. Do you have any favorite film scores? My favorite scores are, are pretty obvious answers, but the Chinatown score, obviously Angela Bailamenti, all the Lynch stuff. Of course, there's Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ scored by Peter Gabriel, all-time great score. There's also a score on the way. So KJ, who I do the I Unpack with, him and our friend Rebecca Sherman-Minty, they have a feature that is in the can, scored by me. It's called Salamander Days. Oh, sick. Okay. That will be out this year at some point. That's not a one-off thing. That's definitely something I'm going for as well. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. What do you like about scoring a film versus writing music? Like, What is the biggest difference that kind of makes you appreciate both worlds? It was amazing doing this because I was kind of holed up in my studio with KJ. I was actively doing it with KJ. Like Sometimes I would work on stuff by myself and, and then send it to him and Rebecca and get notes back. But it felt like having a bandmate in this way. And even beyond just talking to KJ or Rebecca about it, it was just having the scene in front of me. It's kind of done some of the work for me in a way. You know, It's kind of already actualized so many feelings. It's my job to help those feelings and make them maybe more apparent as opposed to kind of being responsible for just interpreting all of this emotion and having the music be the only thing that can convey it. Well, I can't wait to see it. Hopefully I can make it down to New York one of these days. And You guys should like come do a party here or something. Hell yeah. I actually love the title of that film too. Yeah, it's great. I'm very excited about it. And also, I mean, I also just kind of fell more into the film world in general because there like wasn't really a music scene for a while in New York, believe it or not. I was noticing that actually. I was going to ask you about that. It didn't seem like there was one for a while, but over the last year or two, I've noticed that there's like a definitive scene happening. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I can like totally pinpoint exactly when that happened for me. I mean, it was definitely existing before I kind of found my way into it. But back in like 2021, I was deep doing the pod and everything involved with that. But we were still anonymous at that point. And I had all this music done and I was like trying to find a way to not just kind of just like put it on fucking Bandcamp and like see what happened. There was no other musicians that I even hung out with in New York. I was like hanging out in like film and art circles. And I just was like, I can't even find a way to play this live. I need a band. I don't know. I was just kind of like at a loss for how I was going to even make this happen at all. Because it was like, even if I could make people hear this and care about it, it's also not exciting to just do it yourself. Like scenes are important, you know, and especially in New York, because the whole history of New York is scenes. 
especially with Ion, there was a whole, there was such a culture and scene around it. It felt kind of like backwards to just be like sitting here releasing my music kind of by myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Chris Colley, my friend who drums for me, and I've been playing with him forever. He plays in this band called Collapsing Scenery as well. And it was beginning of 2022. And Chris was like, we're going to come do the first collapsing show in New York since pre-COVID. If you want to help us set it up and we'll play as well, we'll, let's get a band together. Let's figure it out. And I was like, yeah, okay. This is because we hadn't done an Ion party in a while and I hadn't played in two years. So I was like, yeah, okay, let's figure it out. Like it kind of lit the fire under me in a way that I needed. So I started like getting the show together and I asked my friend Laszlo to play, who has a band called Laszlo and the Hidden Strength, who are amazing. And we were trying to like get a bill together that hadn't booked like a show show in a while. And this was, I think, March 2022. And I remember one night, a couple weeks before the show, we were still trying to figure it out. Went to this bar and Laszlo was there with Harrison, aka The Dare, who we all know and love. And I knew Harrison kind of from before COVID, but hadn't seen him in a while and didn't even know what he was up to. So I just was hanging with them and he was like, Harrison should DJ the show. I was like, okay, sick. So then we played that show and it went great. And it was like, again, it was this thing I was talking about where I was like, whoa, people actually want to see live music. Like people care about it again. There was like a real want for it. I think there was like so much happening in downtown New York, but none of it was music. That night was huge because it was like, oh, people want this. At that show, I met Jake, who has a band called Sitcom, and he was like, oh, you guys should play with us and Frost Children in next month. Next thing I knew, I didn't even notice it happening. And I was like, oh, there's really like something happening here. There's a scene. It really snuck up on me. It is really nice to see this in New York happening. Like, I hope Toronto and Canada take a little bit of a note from New York because we're in our flop era right now. I just think back to the Indie Sleuth era and how we had like broken social scene and metrics. Yeah, exactly. Canada was like almost as much of an epicenter as New York. Yeah, it really was. Do you have a specific onstage persona or a way you curate yourself for that concert experience? No. <laughs> I, you know. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, I just, you know, I just tell myself I have to go the fuck in. If you play perfectly but aren't going for it, that looks worse than going for it and sounding bad. <laughs> yeah. So you just have to go for it. You have to just totally like leave your body and just kind of go all in. I'm curious. You were anonymous on your podcast for a long time, but how was that kind of going from an anonymous internet personality to now being a public personality? Kind of similar to what I was saying about like being primed for internet hate. It was like a soft opening. By the time it happened, it would just felt normal. It was like, all right, yeah, that ran its course and I'm used to that. And, you know, it didn't feel different, but it's the same kind of thing where it's like you look back to a couple months ago and things feel much different, but you don't notice it as it's happening, you know? Mm -hmm. Like there was no kind of moment where I like look around and I'm like, whoa, things feel different today than they did yesterday. It's just like I look back to last year and I'm like, wow, things feel a lot different now. Yeah. Why were you anonymous? It's kind of hard to explain. It just kind of like happened by accident because we were just kind of posting stuff on the Instagram account, even before the pod, just like shit posting. And people were like, oh, these are such specific references. Like, who are these people? Who are these people? We were like, all right, we're going to go with that. And then that kind of became the crux of it. 
at first, but I think we both wanted to keep it separate. You know, Kate is a filmmaker. I'm a musician. Like, we're not trying to be podcasters. This is like, this will be this other thing that we do. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then before we knew it, it kind of took on a life of its own and became the main thing for a while. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I was wondering if Grace could be in one film, who would it be directed by and what genre? I don't know if Grace would fit in a rom-com, but I would love to have a song in a rom-com. Or like a Cameron Crowe movie, you know, almost famous Vanilla Sky. I would want this some kind of like weird but ultimately accessible melodramatic drama movie. Vanilla Sky is one of my favorite films. Oh yeah, it's the best. I actually was watching The Girl Next Door the other day. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Yeah, I saw that like in high school maybe. I was watching the scene where Alicia Cuthbert has her headphones on. She's listening to, I don't know if she's listening to it, but the song by Filter, Take a Picture. Oh man, that song is, is incredible. It's such a good song. But when I was watching, I'm like, you know, I feel like Grace could actually like work here too. Exactly. That's kind of exactly what I'm talking about. Where Emile Hirsch's character is like lovingly observing her. And I don't know. I just yeah. think it would fit nicely no, in that. Totally. And oh man, Take a Picture of that. There's an underrated band. Yes. Filters so underrated. That whole album is fucking sick. Yeah, I have had so much fun talking to you today. I knew I would. Yeah, I knew I would have a lot too. of fun. For listeners, make sure to follow Curtis on Instagram at the life underscore is here and check out Grace on all streaming platforms. And you're on Bandcamp as well, yeah, correct? Yeah, I am. Okay, yeah, check that out as well. And see you later. See you later. See you later.